my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Woodside Royal Oak. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we're so grateful that you decided to spend your time with us. I have some information that you don't wanna forget. First, are you a runner with no mission? Then I want you to consider joining Team Woodside. Team Woodside is a group of runners and walkers who raise funds for at-risk children at our Thailand and India missions. Each sponsorship brings relief and hope to a child, but most of all, it brings the shining love of Jesus Christ in the darkest of all circumstances. Whether you run, walk, or maybe something in between, we're inviting you to join a group of people who care about these kids. If you don't run, that's not a problem. You can still make an impact by giving to a runner's campaign. Check out our website for more information. Second, if what you're learning about in this series is something that's close to your heart, but you've never known how to take the first steps, then we're offering a class that may help. Financial Peace University is a nine-week class that provides a practical financial stewardship framework so that you can begin your generosity journey. The classes begin in May. You can find more information or register at our Outdoor Connect desk or online at our website. Thirdly, Kids Camp is coming June 21 through June 24. It's going to be an incredible week-long event for your kids who are in pre-K through fifth grade. There, they're gonna make lifelong friends, learn more about Jesus through crazy competitions, interactive teaching, and small group connections. For more information or to sign up, visit woodsidebible.org slash kidscamp. Today, we're continuing our teaching series on 2 Corinthians chapter eight. Pastor John is gonna be preaching on giving and love. Alongside of the series, our church family is also reading a book by author Randy Alcorn titled The Treasure Principle. You can access a reading plan that will complement the teaching series on our website, and you can also pick up a copy of the book outside at our Connect desk for $5. Okay, everyone, that's all the information I have for you. So now let's all stand and worship. Welcome Woodside family, let's stand up, let's rise up and sing out to the King. Let our praises arise to our faithful God this morning.
every knee will bow. Lord, we sing to you. Oh, in your hands is the life of every creature, the breath of all mankind. And you began, just you, where your promises are written in creation. Oh, everywhere we look, we see your plan. Even the rocks cry out, so we'll cry out. Oh, heaven and earth will sing, so I'll sing for you. Oh, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty,
together here and now. Lord, we love you. We always sing for you. Amen. We are in 2 Corinthians 8. You guys sound beautiful. It's amazing. You can take a room full of people that can't sing, and they sound great. That's just the power of God right there. Amazing. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to be generous people, but we need to see more of you. We need to taste more of you and your goodness. We need to believe your promises more deeply. We want to be generous, but we need to turn from what we love. It's a miracle, Father, every time this happens, and you're in the business of miracles. So we come to you, to your word now with great joy and great freedom and ask you for big big things big things for every one of us here those at home big things lord that will transform our pain that will reach the world that will magnify the name of jesus Lord, we pray for Minneapolis and Indianapolis, Chicago. These cities, Lord, have had heavy weeks. We ask for your protection for them, your comfort. We ask for your people in these cities and their witness and faith in you. We know, Lord, that the only lasting transformation that will come to this planet will come not through the political system or through our corporations or our educational system, but only by your agency. And we are grateful for that. And we long for the complete renewal of this world, Lord Christ. We love you. We commend this time to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The word of the Lord. So we continue our series, our new series, Overflow, from him through us to all. We're doing a five-part study of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. These chapters are great. They're all about giving and generosity, and they call us to excel in giving. Excel in giving. Now, why are we learning about giving and generosity? We said last week that it's not because we have a budget deficit, nor is it because we're going into a building campaign, but rather because giving is as important to the church family as income is to your family. Without income, your family suffers. So does the church. That was a practical reason. I want to give you now a deeper reason. 
the link between our spiritual maturity and our view of finances is strong. Strong. Let me illustrate this for you uh, with an insight from the book that many of us are reading, The Treasure Principle. We're selling it. You can buy it on your way out. We're selling it below cost. And so, um, but, but it's, it has so many great insights. In the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist is preparing the people for the arrival of Christ, the arrival of the Messiah, this momentous event that they've been waiting for a long time for. And as he's doing this, he's talking to the people about the danger of trusting in their national identity as Jews to feel justified before God. Instead, he tells them that they're to show their devotion to God by the fruit of their lives. He says to them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So as John is talking to the people, the, the crowds begin to get convicted. And so they ask him, what shall we do? Now, that's a question that every preacher dreams of being asked. What shall we do? And so he begins to tell them. He says to them, whoever has two tunics should share with the one that has none. Same for the one that has food. Tax collectors come to him and say, what shall we do? And he tells them, collect no more than what you're allowed to collect. Soldiers come to him and say, what about we? What shall we do? And he tells them, don't extort money from people by threatening them or making false accusations. And then he says, be content with your wages. So those are some of the things that John is saying to the people. But do you see what he's doing? He's preparing the people for the Christ. And as the people are wanting to learn about what repentance should look like in their lives, every one of his answers had to do with money and possessions. Each one of them. The question was not John. What then shall we do with our money? That's not what they ask. And yet that's what he says in each one of his answers. For as diverse an audience as tax collectors and soldiers and your average Joe, every one of his answers has to do with money and possessions. Why? Because the link is strong between our spiritual maturity and our view, our handling of finances. Let me say it this way. If your faith in Jesus has not transformed the way that you view finances, you have tangible proof that your faith in him is only superficial. That's a strong statement. And I invite you to scour the New Testament so you can see whether it's true or not. But if your faith in Christ has not transformed your wallet yet, you have proof, you have evidence that your faith in him is only superficial at the moment the, the hope is that you won't stay there in fact this series aims at helping us get rid of the evidence <laughs> get rid of the evidence that our faith in christ is only superficial because if you're here i trust that that's not what you want who would want that who would want evidence that their love for their spouse is only superficial who would want evidence that their knowledge in their field is only superficial and yet we have ample evidence in our bank statements, our credit card statements, our debt obligations that our faith in Christ is only superficial. So this series is going to help us get rid of that evidence. But there's another positive effect in this series. Joy. Joy. We want to enhance. We want God's word to enhance your joy, our joy in giving. We have many givers here. And we want joy to be animating and increasing, redounding to you as you do that. Think about this with me. When you give a significant gift 
to someone that's very special to you. You really care about them. You want to be present for when they open that gift, right? You're watching their expression closely. You're watching for that instant when their expression changes as they open the gift and the surprise breaks and their heart swells up with emotion. Why did you want to be there for that moment? Joy. Joy in giving. Most of us, I think, have experienced joy in giving. So now what we need is instruction in connecting our joy in giving with the purposes of God. So we're going to dig in. Why shall we excel in giving? Why should we excel in giving? First, excelling in giving displays God's grace. Excelling in giving displays God's grace. Look at verse 7 one more time. Paul says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Okay, let's remember what's happened in the first six verses. Paul's purpose in these two chapters is to get the church in Corinth to complete collecting an offering that they are sending to the church in Jerusalem. At first, months before, they have been eager to do this, but now they are dragging their feet. The churches in Macedonia, on the other hand, not only were eager to do this, but they finished it. They took up the collection. And it's not because they were flush in cash. Rather, as we said last week, the grace of God came into our, their lives and it led them to this impossible math where their severe affliction and extreme poverty mixed with abundant joy to produce a wealth of generosity. In fact, they had begged Paul and his associates to allow them to partake in it. So now Paul is sending Titus to Corinth to help the churches in Corinth do the same. We also said last week that this whole conversation on giving is being framed by Paul, not in terms of money, but in terms of God's grace on display. Now, once in these two chapters about money, does Paul bring up money? Incredible, right? Instead, he brings up grace, and he brings up grace a lot. Why? Because the way that Paul understands Jesus is that when Jesus touches a blind person, that person sees. When Jesus touches a cripple, she walks. When Jesus touches a mute, he speaks. And so Paul knows that when Jesus comes to the heart of just your average money-hungry, money-fearful person like us, he knows that our hearts will open and money will flow through our hands like water. He knows this. He knows that that's the kind of effect that Jesus has. Not just about giving, but about all kinds of things in life, but he has in view right now giving. But Paul is not an idealist. I know that sometimes in my preaching I can sound idealistic without giving enough space for the fact that Jesus changes us gradually. I don't mean to do that. I know that change oftentimes comes slowly. Okay, so painfully, slowly, slow like molasses, right? So slow. But I also know that God can change us fast and does change us fast many times. And so we should expect both. Sometimes God gives us the power to overcome at once. Sometimes he gives us the power to trust him and struggle. Because in that struggle, we come to meet him and meet ourselves like we don't know ourselves. I know we think we know ourselves, but we don't. Not the way that God wants us to know ourselves and to know him. And so Paul is not an idealist. He knows that when Jesus comes into someone's life who is blind, that person will see. But there's also the man in Mark 8 that needed two touches 
of the master's hand to be able to see. Well, Paul's letters are part of that second touch. Paul sending Titus to Corinth are part of that second touch. You see, Paul does not doubt at all that the people in Corinth belong to Jesus. He doesn't doubt that at all. But he also knows that they need help in connecting, connecting their faith to their actions. Don't we all want that? Don't we want for our thoughts and our words and our feelings and our wills to align with what we know to be true about God? Well, when that happens in every area, all of the time, pinch yourself because you're in the next life. Yes. So the whole conversation is about grace overflowing, grace overflowing. And now Paul helps the people in Corinth see that they do have God's grace and it overflows in so many areas, just not in giving. So how does he go about this? Well, I'm a little upset with the translation here at verse 7 because it obscures for you an important thematic word that Paul uses in these seven verses. When you read in verse 7, the word excel twice, it's the same word translated overflowed in verse 2. So verse 7 should read, could read, but as you excel, as you overflow in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel, see that you overflow in this act of grace also. The translation is not wrong. When you overflow in something, you're excelling at it. It's just that it obscures the emphasis, but it's okay. But here's how Paul brings them along. Remember his objective. He's trying to get them to give for the church in Jerusalem. How is he bringing them along as they're dragging their feet? Well, he tells them that they excel in everything. He tells them you're overflowing in everything. And then he brings up a number of things. He brings up their faith, their speech, their knowledge, uh, their earnestness, and Paul's love for them. Their faith, their speech, and their knowledge refer to manifestations of God's grace that the Corinthians care about quite a bit. In fact, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know that those are the kinds of gifts that they actually were quite infatuated with, and Paul tries to recalibrate them for them in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So these are gifts that really mattered to the people in Corinth. They're highly coveted. Then he talks about their earnestness. He says, you're excelling in your earnestness. That's most likely referring to their desire a few months back to take, care, to take part in this offering. Whatever happened that they haven't finished, there was eagerness there, though. And then he talks about our love for you. This is an indirect way of Paul reminding them that it's no small thing when someone with spiritual maturity takes an interest in your spiritual welfare, as Paul and Titus and others have taken on the, uh, in the Corinthian church. They care about them. And so what Paul is saying to them is, since you're overflowing in all of these different manifestations of God's grace, see to it that you also overflow in the grace of giving. Now, many people are beginning to go back to the gym now, which is great, you know, cautiously, hopefully. But let's say that you're going back to the gym and, and you're working out every muscle group, right? You're working out your, your, your shoulders, your back, your arms, your chest, your legs. I mean, you're, you're hitting it hard. You're even working on muscles that most people don't have. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen someone that's like so in shape and then you look at yourself and you're like, I don't think God gave me that muscle. 
Like, I'm pretty sure he did not. You know what I'm saying? I, like, I felt like that so many times. You know, but you're like hitting it so hard, okay? But, uh, but in all of that, you're, you're actually neglecting your abdomen. So you're not doing much, so your belly's actually kind of large, right? Well, a good coach, a good trainer is going to come to you and say, hey, looks like you're crushing it. But let's talk about your midsection here. Like, what's going on there, right? Well, that's kind of what Paul is saying to the people in Corinth. He's telling them, listen, you're crushing it in your faith, in your speech, in your knowledge, in your eagerness. All of these things you're doing so well. But let's talk about your giving over here. What's happening there? Don't leave that out. Because all of it manifests, displays the grace of God in your life. And I think that this is so wonderful. This is so exciting. Because I know that there are so many of you that can tell. You can tell that God's grace has come into your life. How can you tell? Because you're excelling. You're overflowing in so many areas of your life. I see it. I know that many of you see it in each other, and it's awesome. I was talking to a wife after the first service out there, and she's just talking about her husband and how he has just been growing so much, and it's just she's just amazed, right? And so it's so exciting because I know that for some of you, you're crushing it with your Bible intake. For the last 12 months, I mean, COVID hit, and you opened that Bible, and you've read more of the Bible than you ever have before, and it's blowing your mind. It's opening universes for you and God in a way that, that you never had seen before. It's wonderful. Some of you are crushing it in your relationships. The grace of God has come into your life, and you've realized that Jesus forms us into the family of God, and family doesn't just spend one hour on Sundays every week. And so you've surrounded yourself with the people of God and you're investing in them because you get it. You get that it's the family that Christ came to put together. Some of you are crushing it with your time. Your time. You know that life is short and eternity long and it kind of disgusts you. When you look back at the hundreds upon hundreds of hours that TV or video games or, or other superfluous things stole from you and from your God-given mission. And so now you're buying back time. You're buying it back and you're using it for kingdom impact. And it's amazing you how you're able to use your time in such a more productive and better way than you used to. We could just keep going on and on. It's just beautiful to watch when the grace of God hits and then all kinds of fruit starts to bear in us. It would be a great exercise for you to look at your life and to look at the manifestations of God, God's grace in your life that are just overflowing. That would be a great exercise. And if that's difficult for you to discern, ask someone who knows you well. Ask them. They'll help you. And listen, when someone asks you about that, build them up. Don't tell them, well, you have the gift of discouragement. You know, like, don't say that, okay? There's a time for that. But what we're after here is recognizing that God's grace makes a difference in our lives. And it starts to manifest itself. So tell them, but don't stop there. Don't stop there. As Paul does in verse 7, then you need to keep looking at excelling also in this grace of giving, which so often and so easily we leave out. So, where does giving figure in your budget? 
Is it the first line item? And if it's the first line item, is that a reflection, a visual reflection, right? When you sit down to deal with your finances, God's finances, do you put giving to God at the top? Because it's a reflection that you believe, you know, that the first fruits of your labor, your first crops, go to God. Is that what it's saying? When you do that, that's awesome. That's beautiful. And if it's not the first line item, what does that say to you? What does that say to you? You see, these are the kinds of things we want to think about. This is between you and God. But do the work to see, hey, where does giving figure in my budget? How does it compare to other expenditures, other expenses? I know that we're going to have some expenses that are high, like shelter and food if you have a family. But other than those, and I don't know, maybe some others, how does that compare to your giving? If there's a lot of other things that you have that are way higher than your giving is, what does that say about your priorities? Ask yourself these questions. And if you're one of the people that gives less than $200 a year, as we talked about last week, so what's that, $15 a month? Think about all the other categories that are higher. It's probably just about all of them. Your entertainment, your coffee, your pet, your hair. Listen, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does that mean? Where your money, where our money is going, that's what our life is about. And our bank statements and credit card statements and debt obligations show us where our treasure is instead of Jesus. And we want to look at that because until your faith in Jesus Christ has transformed the way that you view money, that you handle money, you have evidence all over the place that your faith in Christ is only superficial. Don't stay there. Number two, excelling in giving displays genuine love. So it displays God's grace. It displays genuine love. Look at verse 8. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Okay, I don't know if you know this or not, but we are constantly walking into tests. Have you noticed this? We're constantly walking into tests. You know, say that you're driving along in your car, okay? Minding your own business, maybe a little bit absent-mindedly. And you realize that a police officer has been following you. Has this happened to you? And you panic a little because you don't know how long they've been behind you, right? So what do you do? Before you have even time to look at the speedometer to see how fast you're going, you take your foot off the gas pedal, right? And you go 10 and 2, you sit up so straight because you want to look like you always drive like this, even though your breathing is getting tighter and tighter. Now, don't assume I've had this experience just because my details are spot on, okay? I talk to people. But here's the thing. Whether we know it or not, we're in a test. We're in tests all the time. Well, Paul at times employs a word for tests, for being tested, and he does that here in verse 8. About the offering, look at what he says. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove 
That's the word. To prove, that's the word for testing, that your love also is genuine. You see, there are two things that Paul is saying here, and, and they're related. Giving tests us, but not by way of command. No one's going to come to you and say, you should give this much. That's not going to happen. Here's another way of saying it. Giving must be voluntary. But that doesn't mean that we're off the hook. Okay, so let's talk about those two. So first, giving is not a command. Paul says, I'm not saying this as a command. He's not commanding the Corinthian church to give, to be a part of that offering, nor did he command the church in Macedonia, the ones who did this. He's not commanding them. In fact, he goes out of his way to tell us that they gave of their own accord, according to their means, actually beyond their means, and they begged to give. You see, there are times when there's a moral obligation, but Paul does not issue a command. For example, in Philemon, if you're familiar with the letter to Philemon, there, Paul wants Philemon, who is a Christian, who is a brother, and who had a falling out with one of his slaves, who, um, who ran away, and, but then he became a Christian, Onesimus. And as he became a Christian, Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, but he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother, which is the right thing now that he belongs. They both belong to Christ. But he doesn't command Philemon to receive him that way. He says, no, I want this to come from your heart. I don't want this to be out of compulsion. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul sits idly. No, what does Paul do? He sends the letter. And he fills, he infuses, he saturates that letter with gospel goodness and truth that he hopes will soften Philemon's heart. Well, that's the same kind of approach that he's taking with the Corinthians about this offering. He's not commanding them. In fact, in these two chapters, there's only one imperative. We're going to see it next week. One. What does Paul do with the rest of the space? It's two full chapters. He's giving them gospel reason after gospel reason that he's hoping will soften their hearts and open their purses. So that's the first thing. We don't give by command because God wants it to come from your heart. But that doesn't mean that we're off the hook. And that's the second thing. Even though a command is not present here, a test is. There is a test. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove. There's the word for test. By the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. The others he's referring to and their earnestness is the Macedonians. So what Paul is saying is something like this. He's saying to the Corinth, you know the people in Jerusalem. You know the church there. You know their affliction. You know that they gave you the gospel. Well, the church in Macedonia also knows these things, and they gave. What about you, Corinth? That's the test, and it's a test of love because he knows that the church in Corinth had been eager, earnest to do this, but for some reason they had not completed their offering. And so Paul says to them, eagerness is not enough. Prove that your love is genuine by your giving. Pass the test. Listen, every dollar that God puts in your hands tests you. Everyone is going to test us. How are you going to use it? How do you view it? As yours or as God's? Do you think that God is increasing your income to increase your standard of living or to increase your standard of giving? Are you going to pass the test? 
and demonstrate that Christ has really radically transformed everything about you. And demonstrate that your love is genuine. Genuine. These are the things that Paul is asking and calling us here. The Word of God is calling us to ask ourselves. And as Paul is speaking about genuine love, there is one place that his mind goes. He can't help himself. Where does he go? To Jesus himself. Which leads us to our last point. Excelling and giving displays the gospel. Okay, this is one of my favorite verses, you guys. You've heard me use it multiple times through the years. Verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become there are few verses in all of Scripture that so potently and tersely capture the gospel as does 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Circle it. Highlight it. Learn it. Hide it on your heart. It will do you good. It will do you good. Paul knows that no command, there is not any command that can even come close to doing what Jesus has done by the gospel. Nothing. Nothing comes even close. He's working on the Corinthians to give. To open their hearts to give. So he marshals the example and faith and earnestness of the Christians in Macedonia. And how they gave. How the grace of God manifested itself in their lives. And now though he pulls out exhibit A. He goes to the source of all power and grace, Jesus Christ himself. That's where he goes. And he says to them, you know, because they're Christians, they know this. You know that Jesus Christ, though being rich, became poor for your sake, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What grace? He says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What grace? The grace of his being rich of becoming poor for us so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's look at those one at a time. In the Greek sentence, the emphasis falls on for us. For us. The sentence begins, for us, Jesus became poor, rich though he was. For us. This is for us, guys. This is for us. Everything that Jesus has done is for you. It's for us. You know, Paul had an, an, an encounter with Christ that transformed him forever. And part of the reason that the transformation ran so deep, and you can ask yourself, how deep has it gone in you? Part of the reason it went so deep for him was because he personalized it. He internalized it so that he knew that what Christ had done was for him, was for Paul. That Jesus had known him from before the creation of the world. There's one verse. There's a number of them. There's one verse that captures that for Paul so beautifully. It's Galatians 2.20. There Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. Isn't that awesome? Paul gives us first the effect of the Christ event. The effect that that event had had in his life. And then he gives us the fuel that motivates him. What's the effect? 
What's the effect? He says, I've been crucified. I've died. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, who talks like this, you guys? Who talks like this? He says, I have become a home for Christ. I am kind of like a, a, a base of operations for him. He's moved in and Christ lives in me. I no longer live. It's kind of like when there's a catastrophe in a specific place and what happens? Relief teams come into, they descend upon the place from all kinds of different places to help. But what's the first thing they do before they can help? They find a building, a warehouse or something where they can set up camp and from there they begin their relief efforts. That's kind of what Paul is saying about Christ. Christ has moved in. He lives in me. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But then he goes on and he says, now the life that I live, right? Because he does, he is alive. He knows he's alive. He's not a zombie like taking over. That's not what's happening. He says, but the life that I live, I live by faith in the son of God. You see, everything that hits Paul, good or bad, by faith in the son of God. That's how he responds to life. Hardship comes, I believe in the son of God. He has me in this. He will be with me. Doors open for ministry. I believe in the Son of God. I know that he's going to go before me. You see? Everything about his life. He lives by faith in the Son of God. That's the effect. That's the effect of coming to Christ has had on Paul. But the fuel. What fuels Paul? The last part of that verse, Galatians 2.20, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the fuel. For Paul, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He never thought in terms of Christianity, the Christian faith, the Christian religion. None of that. You see, it's so easy for us to think in those terms, in terms of, well, I grew up in a Christian home. Well, I belong to the Christian tradition. You know, for so many people who grow up Christian or around the Christian faith, that very thing can keep them so far from the real deal. From the real deal. Not for Paul. For Paul, it was all about Christ, Jesus. Jesus has come into my life, and he loved me. He loved me. He gave himself for me. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Why are you here? Why are you here? Is it because you know in your soul, in your mind, there is nothing that can come into your life that will take you away from him? Because you know he gave himself for you. He loves you. He loves you. Is that why you're here? Is that what fuels everything about your life? It was for Paul. And he says, for us, Jesus became poor, rich though he was. Rich though he was, he says, rich. Paul has in mind Jesus' pre-existence. His life did not start when his body came out of Mary's womb. He is eternal and eternally glorious. To say that Jesus is rich is to say that water is wet. Of course he is rich. He is God. Paul is not wrong to say that. He's trying to help us. He's trying to help us. Jesus is uncreated, uncaused. He is all-powerful. He is unending. He is self-generating. He is full of love, perfect love, eternally shared with the Father and the Spirit. He can create universes at will. 
This is what Christ can do and has done. The riches of the richest person on earth are breadcrumbs. Listen, they are breadcrumbs compared to the wealth and breadth of glory that Jesus radiates. He is rich. But Paul says, rich though he was, he became poor for us. Poor, you guys. He left his riches. He left heaven. He left his glory. He traveled to a distant country. He traveled to earth where he was not known or loved. And he came with nothing. It's not like he came like a, a big cheese. He came with nothing. He was poor at birth. Poor as an adult. He had no place to lay his head. Poor at death. He hungered. He thirsted. He suffered. His reputation was smeared. His friends deserted him. His words were twisted. His blood was shed. All for us. For you. And Paul wants us to know that. that being rich, he became poor for us. Does it affect you? Does it change you? And then he says, so that... Why did he do this? Why did he do this crazy thing? So that by his poverty, by his descending as low as he could, being God himself, we might become rich. That's it. Now, I love what Paul does here. Because... The whole context of these two chapters is material giving. And yet when he says that Christ has made us rich, he does not have material riches in mind. How do we know? Because the Macedonian Christians live in extreme poverty, but they're fully benefiting from the riches that Christ made available to them. But besides all of that, a fortune can't save a loved one. A fortune can't save a broken heart or a struggling marriage or an aging body or a civilization at war. Material gain can't touch the deepest parts of life. That's not what Christ came to do for us, to give us material gain that can be taken away in a second. He came to make us way wealthier than that. And so Paul says he came to become poor so that in his and through his poverty, we might become rich. And listen, do you see that verse 9? He says, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you see that so that? I've not been that affected by a so that in scripture in a while. So that Jesus left his riches and glory in heaven so that what? So that we might become rich. Amazing. There is no other way. There is no other way that we can become rich in this way. In the way that delivers true peace, true life, true love. There's no other way. I've been freshly aware of the horrors of pornography. How it devalues and enslaves and imprisons and objectifies and ruins relationships how it disfigures god's gift of sex how it keeps its prisoners 
so often in perpetual solitary confinement. And that's just one of the great evils of this world. The same goes for every other form of addiction and violence, which is why this so that hit me so fresh this past week. Jesus, rich though he was, for our sake became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. There is no other way the world over for anyone to find true life, true peace, true love. Have you become rich by Christ's poverty? Please think about this. Or do you still feel destitute even though you believe in Jesus? Where is the disconnect? Where's the disconnect? Could it be that you're still looking at money? You're still mesmerized by another dream, another love. Could it be that you are in a spiritual love affair where you say that Christ is your king and your Lord and your savior and your all, but functionally another treasure is what fuels your life? Look to Christ. Look to his poverty for you. It's the only thing that can deliver you. He's the only one that can make you rich in the way that matters. I wonder if you think that it's kind of cheap for Paul to marshal such lofty gospel pearls to persuade the Corinthians to give money. Is it? No. It's actually because Paul thinks so highly of the human heart and respects the full image-bearing personhood of every individual that he wants every action, especially when it comes to money, which has such strong strings attached to our heart. He wants every action to be motivated, to be fueled, to be empowered by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will know how deeply the gospel has freed you when everything you do, you do for Christ and everything you do comes from swimming in the riches of his grace. So excel in giving. Prove by your giving that Jesus' poverty has truly made you rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, convicted, so convicted, the riches of our Savior. He gave up and became poor for us. And yet, the way he makes us rich, eternally rich, is so often just not enough for us. It's not what we love most deeply. There are other things, other treasures 
that have our hearts. So Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you deal with our hearts. I thank you for how you don't manipulate them, how you don't coerce us. I thank you for how you transform us from within. I thank you for how you align our wills and desires to your will, to your desire. And yes, it comes slowly, so slowly, Lord, for us so often. But you're faithful and you're patient. And we stay with you. Because as Peter said, to whom, to whom shall we go? You have the words of truth. Father, I pray that each one of us would become abundantly generous. That as your grace overflows from us in so many other ways, that we would not leave giving out. We love you. love you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let us stand up and worship him.
use what you've given to us. Lord, let us respond. Let's respond to you and sing this again. Oh, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. Yes, Lord. We can't be shaken on your foundation. Lord, let us go this week. Let us go in response to the overwhelmingness of what you've done, who you are, what you've given us. God, let us go and give like you. Let us go and love like you. Lord, bring to remembrance the truth that you've taught us today for your glory. Lord, we love you. Amen. Church, it is great to worship with you today. We look forward to worshiping all throughout this week in our groups, Bible studies, and next Sunday as well. We'll see you then. As you go, I don't want you to forget to sign your kids up for Kids Camp this summer. It's going to be the most fun that your kids will ever have. They're going to discover how God had designed them, and it's going to be awesome. Remember to head over to our website, woodsidebible.org slash kidscamp. Lastly, don't forget to pick up your copy of The Treasure Principle for $5. It's right outside at our Connect tent. If the service was any encouragement to you in any way, I want you to tag us on social media and share it. We'd love to connect with you. Okay, everybody, we'll see you next time. Cause we were the best